You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to Genesis Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20 through chapter 9 and verse 17. Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered up burnt offerings on the altar. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood, I will require, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth shall be with you, of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, 
forgive us that we sin so much grumbling at our hardship under the curse and express so little gratitude for your faithfulness to your common grace preserving us. And we fail to express gratitude for the great grace that is. And then on top of that, you've shown us grace and mercy and made us a new people in Christ. And so, Father, stun us with the glory of Your common grace toward all creation in Noah, that Christ might be exalted so much higher in all that comes to us through Him, in Your saving grace. Grant Your Spirit now to take these truths to our hearts and conform us to His image, in whose name we pray, Amen. Every day of humanity's existence is full of complaint for the curse come for man's disobeying the covenant of creation or the covenant of works, while little gratitude is shown for His covenant faithfulness to the Noahic covenant that preserves creation despite our continuing sinfulness. We complain about the curse we've merited and offer little to no thanks for the faithfulness of God for the rainbow that hangs in the sky. The Noahic covenant might be the most unappreciated covenant in all of God's dealings with man by those who are bound by those particular covenants. Think of all bound by the Noahic covenant and the response of those towards it. It's one of little thanks. At least mankind recognizes the covenant of creation in a way by our continually grumbling at the curse that's come because of it. But the Noahic covenant is just ignored Altogether, it's unacknowledged. All that is now is because of God's faithfulness to this covenant. Even among the elect, this covenant is neglected. Because all the controversy, all the distinctive kind of things, all of that's owing to other covenants where we can have those kind of arguments. But here, everyone agrees about the substance of the Noahic covenant. Even the dispensationalists agree with us about the Noahic covenant. There's no argument here. We are poorer for a lack of attention to this covenant of common grace, this covenant of preservation. Brown and Keel write, At the end of God's multicolored bow rest a theological pot of gold. The Lord's promise not to destroy the world is a covenant, with an integral place in Reformed theology. The Noahic covenant is the covenant of common grace, the realm of our everyday lives under the sun. Its theological significance extends in several directions. It broadcasts how God governs the world and its goodness. 
It discloses some of man's obligations and roles in the world. And it even points us to Christ. The Noahic covenant is crucial to a biblical understanding of the world and is a necessary part of covenant theology. So let's not fail to gaze at God's multicolored bow and wonder at the rich colors of this covenant with all its blessings of common grace upon creation fallen under the curse for man's disobedience. Before this covenant is made, or rather established, before this covenant is established between God and all creation, we see it contemplated by God Himself. 8.21, when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in His heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And there's an echo here of what's happening and what happened earlier with the covenant of creation. Remember before God formally established the covenant of creation with man, we saw this divine soliloquy. We saw God speaking to Himself. Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. God's covenant dealings with man proceed from His Trinitarian heart. From who He is in Himself. But we not only see this contemplation that, that is behind and underneath the establishing of this covenant, we see what lies behind the contemplation itself, what gives rise to it, what sparks the thought, as it were. In the same way, in our earlier studies, we saw that the covenant of redemption, or as I prefer to just speak of it, God's eternal plan and purpose in Christ, we saw that His eternal plan and purpose of choosing a bride to be redeemed by the blood of Christ, choosing that bride in Christ, we saw that that eternal purpose and plan lies behind the covenant of creation and all of God's covenant dealings with man. In the same way, we're seeing a kind of sacrifice, a blood sacrifice that lies underneath God's covenant dealings here. Noah built an altar. Before we consider the significance of that altar and that sacrifice, and how it gives rise to this covenant, consider the one offering it up first. Noah built an altar. Remember in Genesis 3.15, we have a promise that charges how we read all the Scriptures from that point forward. You're longing and hoping for this seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and undo the curse. And that immediately begins to feel with great significance the genealogies that follow. They aren't throwaway. You see, they're tracing these two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And you see the seed of the serpent with Cain and his line both begins and ends with murder. And then you turn to Seth's line. And with his birth, you're told that when he was born, men begin to call upon the name of Yahweh. And you see in his line, men like Enoch. And as you look at both of those lines, Genesis 4 and 5, you notice that both lines end with a Lamech. And both Lamechs make a speech that interrupts the pattern, the typical beat of those genealogies. 
The first Lamech boasts of his vengeance. The second Lamech names his son Noah, meaning relief or comfort. And he does so saying, Out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now imagine you're reading those words for the first time. And you're reading them in light of Genesis 3.15 and the hope and the promise that's made there. Do you see what Lamech is hoping for in this Noah? And then Noah grows up. And we're told that while all humanity plunges into the depths of darkness and depravity, Noah finds favor. The light of God's countenance shines upon him. Genesis 6, 5-8 Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And so God comes to Noah in Genesis 6 and He says to him, 17 and 18, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And now, emerging from that watery chaos, dry land has appeared again. And a second Adam, as it were, emerges onto this earth. This Adam who we were told in chapter 6 and verse 9 was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, one who walked with God. And coming out of that ark, in this scenario of creation 2.0, the second Adam begins by doing something that looks really different from the first Adam. Noah built an altar. Now, we saw Cain and Abel offer up sacrifices already. This is the first explicit mention of an altar. I don't believe it was the first altar ever built. Noah presumes a lot of knowledge as he's doing this. This is something that I think he already understood. I don't think this is the first altar, but it's the first one God draws our attention to. It's significant and it's meaning. This second Adam, the head of a new humanity is offering up this burnt offering, and we're told that in Yahweh's nostrils it was a pleasing aroma, and it is upon smelling that pleasing aroma that Yahweh says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not 
cease. There's a causality here. When Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in His heart. Now we know, 618, God has already ordained and purposed and determined to make a covenant with Noah. But, He's also ordained the way in which He will come to formally establish that covenant, and He's ordained it that it be upon smelling this pleasing aroma from Noah's sacrifice that He will then move towards formally establishing this covenant. It is as though this Pleasant aroma results in pleasant thoughts towards humanity. Here's a second Adam, and it is as if, because of his sacrifice, all humanity, a new humanity, is blessed. And we'll soon see that Noah is only a second Adam. He is not the second Adam. But what a glorious foreshadowing in the story God is telling. The covenant of common grace through a second Adam anticipates the covenant of special grace through the second Adam. Now in God's covenantal contemplations, verses 21 and 22, we see three purposes that lie underneath this covenant. Two negative, one positive. First, negatively, I will never again curse the ground because of man. So the flood came as a further judgment, a further curse on the earth because of man in his continual disobedience to the covenant of creation. And the next verses, this whole section will make it plain that this does not mean that there will never be judgment at all, but there will never again be an all-encompassing judgment like this one. The reason God says He will not do this is because man. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for, because... The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What mercy there is in God that He has this mercy of common grace on man because man is sinful. The reason He says I will have this Mercy of common grace upon man is exactly because man is so sinful that he does not deserve any grace. What this covenant says is that God extends this common mercy towards man because if he did not, man would not be. All of our days on this earth, even as it remains under God's curse, are days full of His patience and long-suffering. They are days of God's checked hand, His pulled punches, His immeasurable mercy to us hell-deserving sinners. 
We call this His common grace, but it is uncommonly amazing. There's nothing common about it at all in its quality. It's common simply in its quantity. It stretches over all creation. A flood of wrath that we deserve has been replaced by a flood of grace that we do not deserve. And the striking thing is, is that that grace comes precisely because of our sinfulness. And second, negatively, God says He will not strike down every living creature. Man was a steward king when he fell, that under his feet fell with him, under the curse. And so God insulates with this Noahic covenant, He insulates creation from her steward's stupidity. He insulates creation from further suffering, such judgment because of man's sin. And then third, positively, God promises the stability of creation while that creation endures, verse 22. As long as there is an earth, there will be a day when it's made new, but as long as there is an earth, there will be an earthness to it. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And now we come to chapter 9, and we switch from God's self-speaking to His speaking to man, and He speaks a lot. A way to know that you're dealing with a covenant is whenever you find God speaking a lot and man Listening. This is because the covenants define the relationship, and it's God who defines those relationships. God speaks, man listens. God establishes the terms of the covenant. And this is why it's so appropriate that we refer to the Scriptures as the Old and New Testaments. Not every instance, whenever you're reading through the Scriptures, is God making a covenant or establishing a covenant, but these are all of them God's covenantal words. They are words dealing with His people in relation to the covenants He has established. These are God's covenant words. He is speaking, may we listen. God's covenant words to Noah here are very familiar and yet very different. It's as though we're listening to an echo of Genesis 1 and 2, but it's reverberating off this creation that's now been marred by man's sin. And so it it bounces back to our ears differently. And there's comfort then in this for what remains. We have not so sinned that the image of God is eradicated and erased. There's a comfort for what remains. But there's a sorrow for what has been lost. Things are clearly not the same. And yet, though God's words here cause that sorrow, everything that God says in 9, 1 through 7, they're a word of blessing. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, you have six words of blessing in verses 1 through 7. And what ties these, they they preface the covenant, the Noahic covenant. And what shows you how they're part of the Noahic covenant in in this prefacing them 
is that all these words of blessing have to do with the preservation of humanity. And what's being promised in God's covenant is the preservation of creation. So everything God is speaking of here in the covenant made with Noah is a word of preservation concerning all creation. And the first word of blessing is a command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This is a command that in our folly, we are bent on disobeying. And the loss of blessing for our disobedience to this command is now beginning to be so marked and obvious. Look at China. Look at Europe. Look around. Now, the world cries out against obedience to this command and in the name of uh, things like overpopulation or some form of earth love. I'll just make two comments to demonstrate the absurdity of man's reasoning and the wisdom of God in this. Yes, more people means more consumers. More people also means more producers. And start to do the math a little bit. If one farmer can feed, let's say, 100 people, Two farmers could feed 200 people. This is about multiplication, not mere addition when we start looking at this. And so you argue, yeah, but the world is full of lazy people now. Well, there's no new thing under the sun. And the ratio I'm going to challenge will stay the same. So if you have a small society with the same ratio of lazy people as a large society in the same ratio of lazy people, you still are impoverished. And the problem isn't the number of people. The problem is the people. It's not the quantity of people, it's the quality of people. And second, just take our neck of woods. The the same thing is true for the world in total, but let's just take the United States. Such persons have clearly never taken a trip from one end of the states to the other on Route 66. Because if they did, they would realize there is a lot of dirt out there. We're not short on dirt. And grab some seed, go to that dirt, be fruitful, multiply. Now, saints, I'm afraid that we've bought into the world's pathos, the emotion, the sentiment, all while railing against her ethos, her reasoning. We hear her reasoning and we think it ridiculous, but we have the same kind of spirit because really underneath it all, we are worshiping the same idol too often. Our own convenience, our own comfort, our own pleasures. All too often, we are barely maintaining, not multiplying. Now, This is not a reason for us to look at one another in judgment in any way because we don't know the full story that everyone walks with. But this should cause us all to do some self-examination. Fruitfulness. This is where we should just, this is where we need to start in our reasoning. Fruitfulness is a blessing, not a curse. And where that blessing is shirked, where this command is not gladly obeyed, 
The loss of blessings will become apparent on a people. And second, there is a word of promise, 9 and verse 2. There is a fear and a dread of man that now marks the living creatures that man was given dominion over. Where, as before, you, you sense that there was respect. As the animals are paraded before Adam and he names them, now the relationship is one marked by fear. There's a loss here, but this loss is for man's protection. In, in creation gone awry under the curse, nature red in tooth and blood. Praise God that there is this mark of fear of the living creatures in regards to man. And this also speaks to the hope of man's salvation because God promised, I will put enmity between you and the serpent. Speaks to the hope of the one who will destroy the curse and set creation back in proper order. Third, a further reason for this fear that's between man and the living creatures, is the word of provision that's given in verse 3. They're now food. Now, it's debated by some, but I think it's pretty clear and certain from the text that prior to this point, man was a vegetarian. Because in the covenant of creation, you have God saying, every green plant and every tree bearing fruit, I've given you for food. And now at this point, you see the echo once again. Every living creature I've given to you. For food. Things have happened with creation. Things are radically altered and changing under the curse so that man's constitution and diet are even affected by this. And also just note at this juncture, this is, this is critical for understanding something of our relation to the Mosaic Covenant later on, but at this point, you notice there are no dietary restrictions on creatures. Eat them all under the covenant made with Noah. Fourth, there is a prohibition. And just like with the covenant of creation, the prohibition concerning what man can eat relates to life and death. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And as soon as your eyes are directed toward that tree in the midst of the garden, you're also thinking of the tree of life that's in the midst of the garden. And now you're told of this dietary restriction that has life and death connotations to it. The flesh of living creatures is not to be eaten with its life because that is its, with its blood, that is its life. And this language would have been charged with significance to Moses' original audience. Remember, the people who are reading this are the very people whose lentils had been marked with blood of a substitute lamb given in their place that they partook of. This blood that marked them. These are the very people who had the blood of the covenant sprinkled on them at Sinai. Whose worship now, the instructions for their worship are loaded with instructions concerning sacrifices and offerings and blood. Key to understanding all of this is that these people... probably before they read these words that you're reading, had already heard these words from Leviticus 17.11. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourns among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you. You're not providing me something in these offerings. I'm providing you something. 
I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Where does the blood that makes atonement by the life? Rewind, play this again. Noah built an altar. And its pleasant aroma arises and is satisfying and pleasant in the nostrils of God. And He's moved towards covenant. And who has, who's really behind everything that God gave all of this? It's not something that man coerced God into like we would see with the pagan deities and making a sacrifices where we fool and manipulate them. No, this is all God's doing. And fifth, all this leads naturally to a word of protection then concerning man's life, 9.5. The living creatures are delivered into man's hand for food. We're not delivered into theirs. They don't have a right, nor does any other man have the right to take another man's life murderously. For man's life is far more precious than theirs because man is made in the image of God where they are not, 9, 5 through 6. And so a reckoning is demanded for the life of man, whether it's taken by man or beast. And the agent of reckoning is man made in the image of God. If man can't murder, then how can man execute? Well, it's because man is made in the image of God. God has that authority. One man exercised it unrighteously without God's permission. And another man made in God's image may, under his authority, exercise that righteously. Now, such thinking is thought inhumane, barbaric by so many today. But this is a grace of preservation C.S. Lewis wrote a brilliant essay titled The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment. It's a must-read. It's not a long read. Everyone should should check it out. It's probably the easiest way for you to get a hold of it is a collection of essays published as God in the Dock. But if you've got any of his essay collections, check them first before you buy that. It might be in there. Lewis said that the scary thing is for us to replace punishment with therapy. Has that happened? Well, we now have correctional facilities. Because when you replace punishment with therapy, there's a limit on punishment. The punishment fits the crime. Punishment is about justice. But if you're talking about therapy... If you're talking about curing a person, well then, there's no limit to what you can do to the person in the name of good because it will change them and make them better. Do you see how scary this is? And if we've traded punishment for cures, that means we've also traded crimes for diseases. And who gets to define what the diseases are that need to be cured? Mick alluded to persecution. This is the kind of nomenclature in which persecution will be shrouded. Christians are a disease. They're a liability. They harm society. They arouse anger and violence. And they need to be cured and educated by the state. 
Such a system of correction in the hands of a tyrant is horrifying. And so Lewis wrote, to be cured against one's will and cured of states which we may not regard as disease is to be put on a level with those who have not yet reached the age of reason or those who never will, to be classed with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals, but to be punished, however severely, because we have deserved it, because we ought to have known better, is to be treated as a human person made in God's image. Here, on the other side of the fall, on the other side of the flood, where man's intention is only evil continually, this is a preserving grace, that this fundamental principle is engraved on our hearts that we recognize righteousness and justice is demanding an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. All because of the high dignity of man bearing the image of God. And finally, sixth, the first command is repeated again. It comes to you in a fresh light though, 9-7, be fruitful, multiply once again. You sense that man is not meant to be about eradicating and erasing the image of God on this earth, but multiplying and filling the earth with that image. These blessings are all blessings of preservation. And where these blessings are refused and not received, humanity perishes and returns to the dust. Do you not see this? Can you not look? It's this simple. Look at nations and peoples. And where they ignore these six words of blessing, you will see a people or a nation going the way of the dust. And where you see a nation or a people, where children are thought of as a blessing and the family is appreciated, and there's justice. It's just that simple. If you have those two things, that is a people who will flourish. Because those things are blessed already. And this brings us to the formal establishment of this covenant now. In verses 8 through 17. God's covenant of universal common grace on fallen man and all creation. God establishes His covenant with Noah, verses 8 through 11. That He will never again cut off all flesh and destroy the earth by a flood. And as a sign of this covenant, he hangs his bow in the cloud, 9, 12 through 13. Now, signs signify. They stand in the place of the covenant itself and picture it. And there are three covenants that are explicitly said to have a sign in the Pentateuch. In the Abrahamic covenant, you have the sign of circumcision. And in the Mosaic Covenant, you have the sign of the Sabbath. And those signs are not arbitrary. They have significance. They signify the covenant itself. To Abraham, whom you're waiting for his offspring to be heirs of all the promises, you have given the covenant of circumcision. And to the Hebrews, delivered out of their hard bondage in Egypt, you have the covenant sign of the Sabbath of rest. Now, what's the significance of the bow? Well, yeah, it comes out after it rains, but is that as far as it goes? Is that all that that means? 
Only a few times in the Old Testament is this Hebrew word used to refer to a rainbow at all. The other two being in Ezekiel. The majority of the time this word is used, it references a battle bow, a warrior's bow. The same bow, kind of bow, a battle bow, is being spoken of in Hebrew, Habakkuk excuse me, 3, 9 through 10. And the language that accompanies the use of God's bow there is striking. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Salah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. God has hung His bow in the cloud. He's hung it, as it were, on the mantle of His creation. It's no longer in His arms, pointed downward towards man in judgment. He has hung it up, and it points up towards Him as a sign to remind Him. Remember, these are the very people who have heard, I'll see the blood, and I'll pass over. And now they're reading that much earlier, God made this covenant and said to Noah, I will see the bow and remember my covenant. An everlasting covenant. This covenant, while it's everlasting in duration, universal in scope, is limited in depth. It is a covenant not of salvation, but of preservation. It's a covenant of common grace, but not of special grace. It's a covenant that keeps man out of hell for a time, but it does not deliver him from hell altogether. But it is a covenant that is critical to God's plan for the serpent crusher to come and fully undo the curse. Because if this covenant were not made, there would not be a humanity to save. It ensures that there will be an earth and a humanity from which the seed will come. This covenant does not save humanity. It ensures there will be a humanity there for a Savior to come from and for that Savior to save. And also, it anticipates God's covenant promise of the true and better Noah. Lamech's hopes for Noah, they were realized, but only in a shadowy kind of way. Soon, you can read on, and you can see the second Adam, Noah, falling as the first, and left naked and ashamed. Here we see only a second Adam, not the second Adam. Creation here was washed of sinners, but we don't see sinners washed of their sins. Creation was cleansed of its sinners, but there is not a creation 
cleansed for cleansed sinners, all things made new, the curse washed away. But now, saints, we're privileged to gaze upon the second Adam, the true Noah, who brings relief, who built the ark of our salvation using only two timbers, three nails, and the pitch of His wood, the pitch of His blood. All who take refuge in the ark of His cross are borne safely through the flood of God's wrath. His sacrifice, His offering ascends to the Father and it so pleases, it so placates, it so propitiates the Father that it establishes an eternal and everlasting covenant, not merely to preserve this earth under its curse, but to redeem a new humanity and a new creation. Sinner, don't trust simply in the promise made to Noah of God's patience and long-suffering. Look to Christ and know His covenant love and favor as a bridegroom has for His bride an eternal I do of knowing His love and favor. Trust in His sacrifice to make a new humanity. Look to Christ risen and trust in the hope of all things being made new. God will not simply preserve you for a time. He will forever love you as the bridegroom is loved of her bride, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant repentance. We plead with any sinner present that only knows your covenant faithfulness in Noah. And open their eyes to behold Christ and to throw themselves in trust on the promise you made at the cross. For the new covenant blood of Christ to be sprinkled on them and wash them clean from their sins. And grant them boldness to share that with us today that we might rejoice with them. Father, for your saints, I pray our hearts have been lifted up to rejoice at this uncommon, common grace that we walk in all of our days that preserves humanity, that it will give us wisdom in thinking about how humanity is best blessed and lives unto you. and We would would be a salt and light in our obedience to these blessings that you pronounce here. But Father, also, because of seeing your rich grace here, may we just be stunned and in awe all the more that not only are we wrath-deserving sinners, beneficiaries of this covenant made with Noah, 
and this common preserving grace. Oh, what love towards us sinners. That you would flood us with the blood of Christ. Wash us and make us new. Father, may we live as your new people in this earth. To the glory and praise of your name, the name of Christ, send your spirit that it may be so. We plead this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.